I hope you do. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 19 to verse 23. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Let me pray and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and, and do what Christians have always done, which is come together to hear from you through your word, to worship you in response of the gospel that's been proclaimed. Lord, I pray to that end that your spirit would come and fill this room and, and do the work that only he can do. Lord, this is serious what we're stepping into. We need to wrestle with some of these truths. Some of us are, are really challenged uh, by uh, the issues that are being addressed in, in this specific passage. And so, Lord, we need you to come to give us eyes to see, to give us faith where we doubt, to convict us where uh, we need the light of the gospel to shine brightly in our minds and our hearts. So, Lord, to that end, come and fill this room. And I pray, Lord, that no one would walk away from this time unchanged. Lord, if there's someone in this room that has not been converted, who's not trusting in you today for their salvation, I pray that this would be the day that they would be transformed by the gospel. Lord, I pray that we not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I pray that even now I would hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, humans have a condition where we always want to know why. Like we're constantly asking, like, why is something important? Is this worth our time, worth our energy? Is What's the practical value of things? These why questions begin at an early age. Some of these are maybe goofy, but I, I read a funny article this week about uh, some why questions that, that toddlers ask. Some of these maybe will blow your mind, but one boy asked his mom why mattress companies put a design on their mattresses if they only get covered up by sheets. I think that's a pretty good question. So I have somebody talking behind me up here. I don't know where it is. I don't know the guys in the back. Can y'all hear that or am I, am I losing my mind? So sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Is there a phone? <laughs> I didn't catch it. Uh, you're good. You're good. Um, thanks, man. Um, designs on mattresses. Okay. Where are we? Mermaids. Yeah. One girl asked me, and I think this is a great question. Uh, how do mermaids go potty? Good question. Ask his mommy, why do... Uh, how do spiders not get stuck in their own webs? Another great question. I'm sure a nerd in here could answer that, but I have no idea how that's the case. Uh, another one, and, and hang with me on this. Uh, one dad had his, his daughter ask why her ice was not warm enough, and then she had a meltdown. That's my dad joking here. Um, when, when he wouldn't give her enough warm ice. Okay, parents, if you were there and you were powered down by all the all these uh, ridiculous why uh, waters. Let me give you some ammo today. So I thought those were funny, but I wanted to make sure this was worth your time coming to church today. If you're a parent of toddlers powered down by the whys, let me give you some comebacks. Number one, just keep meeting their questions with your own questions. Just keep asking them questions, and eventually they'll quit. That also works well in, in counseling. Um, There's the, uh, what they call the old uh, pass the buck approach, but what I call uh, the go ask your mother technique. There's also the Google it method, but of course, parents, there's certain things we don't want you to Google, amen? 
right? Um, what's the last one here? Oh, there's also the tried and true because I've said so. And dads are great at that one, right? In all seriousness, even grown-ups have a series of why questions, right? Like, like especially with regards to our spiritual life. Why is this important? And, and, I, and I think that's particularly important in a book like Hebrews. Like Hebrews is this deep dive into and very speculative theoretical theology, right? So, so like, why is it important that Jesus is better than the angels or more superior than, uh, than the prophets and the priests? Like, like, why is it so important that, that uh, he has this better ministry than the Old Testament priests? What, what's going on here in the book of Hebrews is, is similar to, to other New Testament epistles, where, where it starts with an, an imperative, and then it gets to, uh, I'm sorry, it starts with the indicative, and then it gets to the imperative. If you're not a grammarian, what I mean is, is it starts with the truth. These foundational, glorious gospel truths, and then it gets to why it matters. So, so it starts with theology, and then it gets to the practical applications. That, that's what's uh, going on in the book of Hebrews. That's what's typically going on in all of Paul's epistles. And, and up to this point in Hebrews, this has been this remarkable deep dive into Christology, which is just the doctrine of Jesus, the, the person and work of Christ. And, and we have waded into some very deep waters on who Jesus is that he's superior, again, to the angels and the priests and the prophets. He has this, this better ministry. He, he's a, accomplished all these things on the cross. And he's given us this new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. And now the author of Hebrews is taking kind of a structural turn, if you will, where he's going from uh, the indicative to the imperative. He's going from these glorious gospel truths these speculative, theoretical truths about who God is, and now he's going into the practical. He's making this turn into these tangible things that we're supposed to live by as a result of all these glorious gospel truths. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, it first gives this great summary of why Jesus is better, and then it's going to give us three imperatives. Now, when I was working on this this week, this was going to be the longest sermon I preached uh, I think probably ever at Redeemer Church. And so I dropped the third imperative, okay? So we're going to look at this thing that we're supposed to remember, these gospel truths that we're supposed to remember, and then we're going to look at the first, uh, of, uh, the first two of the three imperatives. But the first thing I want you to see from 19 to 21 is I want you to remember our confidence in the blood of Jesus. Let me, let me read starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And let me stop right there. This is this great uh, summary of the indicative of the book of Hebrews. He's going back to these glorious gospel truths. And, and he's just going to expound them in a way, not only just explain them, he's going to explain them so we remember them so that we can then apply them. And he wants us to remember the confidence that we have in Jesus. We're to rely upon him. We're to, we're to trust in him. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but our confidence is in him. And more specifically, our confidence is in the fact that we can freely approach God. 
Now, remember, we're talking about the temple here. And in the temple, that's where God dwelled. That, that's where the presence of God was, was in the temple. He was in the, in the, the holiest of places. And the, the further in you got into the temple, the closer you got to God. And no one on their own was worthy to enter into those places. Because there were all these restrictions to get to the presence of God, right? And what he's saying here is he has taken away all those restrictions. All those restrictions are gone. And so Jesus gives us confidence that we can go directly into the presence of God. This is so much better than the Old Testament. And listen, this is the great benefit of the gospel, that we can commune with God. We can be in his presence. But, but really the good news is how he does it. The, the how here is by the blood this is consistent with Romans 3.25. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You see, what he gets at in these first verses is that it's by his blood that he is this substitution. He's this sacrificial substitution. So somebody's going to die. Some blood is going to be shed. But, but it's his blood that was shed so that we can then dwell with God. You see, it's his blood who was shed as a substituting payment. You see, there was a debt that needed to be paid, and he paid it for us. So the gospel is, is that Jesus died in your place. Now, what he's getting at here in verse 19 is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, young people, if you've never heard that phrase, I, I want you to pay attention here, because this is the, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is essential. And, and let me maybe say it this way. I, I say this to my, uh, my seniors in my little biblical worldview class. When, when we get to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, I always tell them that, listen, this doctrine is so important that if you're on a, on a date with somebody, ladies, if you're on a date with a guy and you find out that he doesn't hold to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, honey, you don't need to pray about it. Like you don't need cloud formations. Now be polite but you just go ahead and get up and say, you're nice, you're cute, I love how you sing or throw the deep ball on Friday night, but Dr. Caswell said, I can't date you. <laughs> now here's the reason why. If he doesn't hold to the doctrine of substitution atonement, he is not by definition a Christian. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of it, that Jesus died in your place. And when you believe that, then that means you've been born again. That's, this is the heart of the gospel. And, and, and if someone doesn't believe that, then they're not a Christian. This is how we can then confidently go into his presence. And listen, ladies, don't waste your time with a guy who doesn't believe that. He's not a Christian. And further, don't waste your time, ladies, for a guy who doesn't really know the word enough to know something like that. Amen, ladies? Amen? All right. Verse 20 draws us back uh, to the moment when Jesus died and the curtain was torn. This is in reference to what happened in uh, Mark 15 and Matthew 27, and it's recorded in Luke 23 as well. And, and if you remember, it was, a, it was a wild moment that the curtain to the, uh, to the Holy of Holies was torn. And part of what was strange about it was is that it wasn't torn from the bottom to the top. It was torn from the top to the bottom. And that curtain was huge and it was thick. It was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. It was four inches thick. And the fact that anyone could even tear it highlights that, that uh, a human didn't do this. And coupled with the fact that it was torn from the top, not from the bottom, it, it shows that, as he says here, quote, he opened the curtain. So God opens the curtain for us. And that's what we see in, in verse 20. He explains why he tore it open. 
The purpose of it was for us, as he says in verse 20. So we now have this benefit, if you will, of being able to dwell with God because he tore open the curtain. And even more specifically, he opened the curtain for us, and it's a new and living way, is what he says in verse 20. What that means is, is there was an old way to live with God, the old covenant, and this is this new way, and, and it's a living way. It's marked by life. It's better than the old way. He offers us something better. But, but notice, too, in verse 20, we need to be careful that, uh, of, of how he opened it and, and how we have access to it. It says that he opened it through his flesh. So the way to being in God's presence is through Jesus. And this is consistent with what Jesus himself said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except how? Through me. The good news is that you can dwell with God. You can be in his presence. And that fact is an eternal fact. That means that you can come into his presence for eternity. That if you're trusting in him, you're with him for eternity. But it also means you can be in his presence now, in the presence. You can have this soul-filling spiritual life in the presence. But the Bible is abundantly clear that that is through Jesus. So you don't get to heaven except through Jesus. And you also don't get the, the benefits of, of walking with him and all those glorious things that come from it, that, that peace that passes all understanding, that, that eternal hope, all, all that, that, that calm in the face of a storm, all that comes through Christ. You don't get it through yoga. You don't get it through all these other things. You get it through Christ. Further, Jesus is the, as he says in verse 21, the great high priest over the house of God which means he presides over or he administers God's people into God's presence. He's, he's overseen this, and that's why we can have great confidence. You see, in the Old Testament, their confidence was in this, in this frail man making these sacrifices. And so if you would come up to the temple and maybe have your pigeon or whatever you're sacrificing, you, you had to kind of look at that man, that priest making that sacrifice, and in essence, you're crossing your fingers, hoping that he has done all the ceremonial things to make himself ceremonial, ceremonially clean, and, and hopefully this works out for you. But, but we have a different type of confidence now. Our confidence is in Christ. He's the sacrifice. And in a similar way, our confidence is not in Hail Marys. It's not in getting married in a Mormon temple. And, and let me say this very clearly. It's also not in some vague, ungrounded, and unserious notion that you've done more right and wrong. Friend, if, if that's your spirituality, that is by definition apathetic spirituality. You have nothing to ground that on. That's an unserious approach to the spiritual life. And, and that's the average American today. No, our confidence is in Jesus. He shed his blood for us our great high priest, and now we can confidently enter into the presence of God. This is the good news. Isn't that glorious? Amen. We can go in there. We have confidence in it on nothing we've done, but on everything that he's done. Friends, do you really believe that his blood paid your debt? Do you really believe that his blood opened up a new and living way for you to live? Do you believe that you can be in God's presence right now through Christ? If that's your belief that you are a Christian and you have this opportunity to be with him for eternity, remember our confidence is in the blood of Jesus. Okay, but so what? Why? Why, why are we now, how are we now supposed to, to live with confidence? Like what does this mean for our day in, day, day out? 
The author again gives us now three imperatives based on this truth. And the first one is found in verse 22. Therefore, draw near. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with, um, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This first application, this first imperative is to, is to draw near. Based upon the good news that Jesus has been your substitute, that his blood has covered you, you are now able into, uh, to go into the presence of God for eternity. And the application here is to draw near. The thing you're supposed to do with that truth is to draw near. This first application is about personal devotion. You see, he shed his blood, he tore open the curtain so that you can then have access to God so that you can draw near to him. In other words, if you want to take it the other way, if, if you think, if your belief is, is, listen, he died covered by sins, I get my golden ticket into heaven, and now I can go live however I want, you're doing it wrong. If you think that, you're, that he died so that you could go further away from him, you're totally missing the point. The point is, is that he does all of that so that you can draw near. And in fact, this is a very clear imperative that you are to draw near to him. He didn't shed his blood for you to go away, but for you to come near to him. He shed his blood for you to come into his presence. Further, this charge to, to draw near is done with full assurance, he says. This means it's, it's genuine. And so you have this faithful confidence. He, he's not talking about a, a shallow or, or some sort of superficial faith. Uh, when Chris and I were in the Holy Land this spring, I saw one of the most remarkable examples of what seems so shallow and, and superficial. We, we go into a cathedral, and uh, there, there's a, a rock that's a rock. Jesus, they put Jesus' body on after he died. Probably is not the rock. But there was this guy, and he had a, he had a bag of gifts that he had bought people. And, and on all these, these little boxes of things, and he had two bags with him, and he was kneeling next to this rock, and he was taking these items out and kind of tapping it on the rock and then taking this one out and tapping it on the rock. And I asked our guy, what, what is this guy doing? He goes, oh, well, he believes that uh, if, if you touch an item of that rock, then that, that rock, then that item will be blessed. And I thought, man, what a, what a, what a shallow faith. Like, like, isn't that easier to do that than like to battle sin? Like, isn't that so much easier to just, yeah, 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 okay, good, I'm good, and now I can go live my life. Isn't that an, an ungenuine, shallow faith? You see, what God is calling us to, and, and listen, maybe that came from a good place in that guy's heart. I don't know. But as I looked at that, I said, man, I, I want something more real than that. I want something that's more true than that. He, God calls us here to draw near to him and, and do it from a, from a true heart, he says. This is about a very personal, relational faith is what he's talking about here. He says, okay, draw near, do it with full assurance, because he has sprinkled clean our hearts. You see, he has, he's done the, the atoning or the, the sprinkling, cleaning work. He's done that for you to, to draw near. Not for you to go through these religious motions, but, but for you to have this, this real devotional, relational communion with God. He's covered you with his blood with the purpose of getting you closer to him. His blood was shed, therefore draw near. But what does it look like to draw near? Well, it means spending time with him. This week, some of our elders and staff went to the Together for the Gospel conference. And, and I, I heard a pastor named Shai Lin. He, he made a, a great quote that has really stuck with me. 
This is to a group of pastors. He says, love for doctrine is not the same thing as love for Jesus. Are you tracking what he's saying? Love for doctrine is not the same thing as loving Jesus. Now, he, now he quickly, quickly, he, just, he said, well, hold on, let me qualify this. He said, if somebody comes up to me and says, I don't love doctrine, but I love Jesus, then I respond with, well, who's Jesus? And then we're immediately into a doctrinal conversation, right? So he's saying, he, he's not discounting doctrine. In fact, he's very clear that, listen, you need to have an understanding of doctrine in order so that you can understand Jesus and love Jesus. Okay, so you need doctrine to get to Christ. However, if you take it the other way, you can love doctrine, you can understand doctrine, and yet not know and love Christ. Okay, what a great message to a group of pastors. You see, drawing near means not just learning more stuff. Drawing near means knowing the person of Jesus Christ. It's this personal spiritual relationship with him where you walk with him day after day. This is about personal devotion. It's about getting up in the morning and spending time in prayer and spending time in God's word. It's about memorizing God's word so the spirit can use it to minister to you or minister to others. It means uh, maturing in your understanding of the gospel and of theology and of God and then how we're supposed to live. You see, drawing near is ultimately about prayer, right? Prayer, of course, is, is uh, communication with God. So, so there's a sense that in your prayer life, you're to communicate or, or talk to God, speak to God. But also there's a sense in your prayer life that you're to listen to Him. It's not just a one-way communication. Prayer is supposed to be two-way. So you're supposed to be praying with God's Word so that you can hear from Him. And listen, some of this means that, uh, means that we need to develop habits and rhythms in our prayer life. If you're a morning person, you know, spend time in the morning in prayer. If you're a night person, do it at night. Have these rhythms and these, uh, and these habits uh, of a devotional life with God. But also, and I think this is where I struggle, I can, I can check boxes and you know, get into this rhythm, but then I go about my day and totally forget about it. But this also is a call to, to have a prayer life that is living and active even throughout the day that's more free-flowing and less structured. We should pray throughout the day. Again, this is why. This is why He shed His blood for you. If you think He graciously shed His blood for you in order for you to do whatever you want, then you've totally missed the point. He did it so that you can walk with Him. He did it so that you can know Him. That's the good news of this statement. And it only gets better because we understand that, that, uh, that his shed blood, it doesn't just, it's not just this golden ticket into heaven, but it leads to real communion, like life-giving communion. This, this communion that, 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 is, that is our place of joy. You see, substitutionary atonement, it has the purpose of personal spirituality. Gazing upon all his glory, that's the good stuff of life. That's better than money and sex and all these other things. Gazing upon Him, being in His presence, that's where we find joy. That's where we find happiness. And that's why He died. Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb. Therefore, draw near to Him. Well, let's look at one more imperative. Therefore, hold fast. Look with me at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He, for he who promised is faithful. Drawing near is about personal devotion, but, but holding fast, this is about personal consistency. You see, because Jesus shed his blood and tore open that curtain, we're to hold fast. We're, we're to cling tighter. 
Again, uh, if you are not holding fast, then you're doing it wrong. He, di- he didn't die for you to have this spiritual life where you're constantly waver- wavering and bouncing back and forth. He wants this faithful, consistent life. We, we get to experience the joys of the gospel over and over and over and day in and day out. You see, when people are, are erratic in their faith, they're out of God's redemptive plan for them. He didn't die on the cross for you to be paralyzed by doubts for the rest of your life. Friends, deconstruction is not a virtue. Holding fast is a virtue. You see, abandoning the faith, that's not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. Falling away is not insightful. It's foolish. But, but notice what we're to hold fast. The thing that we're supposed to cling tightly to here in verse 23. He says it's the confession of our hope. This, this hopeful confession is the gospel. All of these things that the author of Hebrews has been saying up to this point, this is this this hopeful confession that we have that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. He's now opened up the curtain. We can be in God's presence. This is the thing that we're supposed to hold fast to. This is the confession we're to cling to. You see, you're to cling tightly to the gospel when someone makes a snarky comment about uh, who did Adam and Eve's children marry. You see, you're supposed down on that hopeful confession when you read a journal article some question that you can't immediately answer you see you're supposed to squeeze even tighter when all your friends go one way but you know God is clearly calling you to go a different way the reason you're to hold fast is because quote he has uh, he who promised is faithful that's why we hold fast he's faithful compare that to all the other things that draw us away are those things faithful? Is woke ideology and cancel culture, is that going to be faithful to you? That, that, that woman who is cheating on her husband with you, is she going to be faithful to you? Is wealth, is that going to be faithful to you? Friends, those confessions are hopeless. You see, Jesus is faithful. He's faithful when we have cancer. Jesus is faithful when your wife leaves Jesus is faithful when your business fails. Jesus is faithful, more faithful than whatever is tempting you away. And hear me, Jesus is even faithful when you are not. Amen? He's faithful. Listen, Jesus didn't die for you to have one toe in, only to run away when you're tempted by something else or or when something you like doesn't happen. I'm, I'm not a millennial and I'm not a baby boomer. But, but I know Gen Xers. And I've watched Gen Xers for 20 years make a choice between either being cool or following Jesus. And I've seen a lot of them choose being cool. You see, when Gen Xers were coming up in high school, the, the society uh, you know, praised us for walking faithful with the Lord. They saw it was good and it was moral. But now when the culture has turned on us, and they view it as oppressive or mean or harsh. Man, I've watched Gen Xers just jump ship on all of that stuff. They don't want to be unpopular. And I've watched them shipwreck lives chasing being cool versus chasing following Christ. Gen Xers hold fast, uh, not to the latest fad, but hold fast to the biblical gospel. That's how you avoid so much destruction in life. There's always going to be a fad. There's always going to be a new idea. There's always going to be something else that comes along. We're fast to Christ. That, that's, how we, uh, that's how we find faithfulness uh, and enjoy in this world. 
Gen Xers, there's always going to be another fad or a trend. There's always going to be another temptation. There's always going to be some sort of sociological or political theory that you can't answer. But still, Hebrews 10 still says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because uh, He who promised is faithful. Young people, that's the pathway to joy. Middle-aged Gen Xers, come home to the one who's faithful. He's better. He's better than whatever is tempting you away. Hold fast. Well, let me stop there. We could go on for another hour with the next two verses, but we'll, we'll cover 24 and 25 next week. But let, let me close with some, maybe some implications of this. The main reason people run away or, or don't draw near is because of sin and suffering. There's something that is tempting us away and we run away to it, believing that we'll find more happiness there. Or we're we're suffering. Something really painful comes into our lives and we run away. Friends, when you're tempted, remember that he is always better than whatever Jesus-less temptation comes calling. He's more profound. He's more secure He's more, uh, he provides more joy. He'll, he'll bless you with more meaning, with more su- uh, significance. He simply, no matter what it might appear on social media, a Jesus-filled life is always better than a Jesus-less life. Therefore, draw near. And hear me, loved ones, no matter the suffering, draw near to Jesus. In, in the ways that maybe your church or your pastor has failed you, Jesus would never fail you in those ways. In the ways uh, um, that others have failed you, he just won't. You see, he's going to be with you in the hospital. He's going to be with you at the party. Draw close to him when she leaves you. Draw close to him uh, as that CAT scan is running. Draw close to him when you don't have the answer. The main reason people let go is also really a couple of reasons. Number one, people get tired of battling the fleshly desires, and we just, we just let go. We give up. Or uh, we feel some sort of pressure from the world. These, these, these waves hit us from the world, and we finally just give up. You see, we, we have this the, the, in our inside of us, this flesh that surges for something, and we're, we're, we're tempted. We just get tired of fighting it. Or, or there's just more arguments that come or, or, or more uh, 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 things that are thrown out by the world against us, and we finally just give up and we give in. I don't know about you, but I get tired of battling. One of the most helpful truths that, uh, that, that I've learned is that the world is always going to be a spiritual battle. You see, I, I have this subtle belief that, okay, if, if I'm faithful, th- then life is going to be a life without struggle. It's going to be a life without ease. The opposite is true, isn't it? Gray hairs, the opposite is true, right? I mean, just look at Jesus. He was the most faithful person that ever lived, and all these trials came. So if your battles are intellectual or sexual or financial or fearful or historical, then know that they're the product of this fallen world. Hear me. You might be 90 years old and still need an accountability partner. You might have walked with Jesus for 50 years, but you might still need to keep memorizing Bible verses on anger and anxiety. Now that in my, in my 40s, I've had the chance to see a number of fads, even ideological and, and theological fads, just, just kind of come and go. Like I remember when 
postmodernism kind of got into the church and, and people were just all hot and bothered as if postmodernism was finally Satan's way to get in to finally kill the church for good. Here we still are. Like I remember, this isn't theological, but man, I remember when grunge was cool. Are you with me? Man, I bring in nirvana to my students and we try to make a point about nihilism and I think it's so cool and so profound and they just kind of shrug and go, eh, it just makes me sad and they don't like it. I'm like, there's nirvana. It's the most important band ever. It's a fad that's come and gone. Friends, I remember being in a, in a debate with a group of pastors where we were trying to distinguish between the emerging and the emergent church. Now, friends, that sounded dumb in the moment, but looking back on it, it was totally ridiculous. We had this idea that if we didn't get all that right, that somehow the church was going to fail. Let me confidently say something about our generation. Jesus is going to build his church, and woke ideology and cancel culture will not stop it. Amen? Hold fast. Hold fast as these waves of ideas come and, and these worldly pressures come. The, the world will soon scurry along to another fad. And we're going to get to experience the joy of walking with Jesus. Amen? What happens when we, when we do run away? When we do let go? What, what happens when we fail to draw near and hold fast? Look back up to verse 22. When you fail, remember that He has cosmically sprinkled you clean and He's washed your soul pure. What that means is He always welcomes you home. You're never too far gone. He died so that you could draw near even if you ran away years ago. Look again at verse 23. See, when, when you fail, remember that He promised to always be faithful. You see, when you let go, He holds fast. Amen? You see, He does this so that you will see the futility of leaving your wife or pursuing all your homosexual desires. You see, He'll receive you back like the father of the prodigal son. Isn't that good news? Never too far gone. He died so that you could turn and hold fast. He is always faithful. This week, like I said, we attended this pastor's conference with some of our staff and elders, and it's always busy leading up to Easter. And so it was just a refreshing time and a, and a fun time and encouraging time. And, and I really went because I got to, I wanted to hear some of my, my favorite preachers, and I, I particularly love when they do these panel discussions, and it's kind of maybe off the cuff, and they ask them these different questions. And one of my uh, favorite preachers over the years, he's an older pastor now, they they had a panel discussion where it was kind of his reflections on 50 years of ministry. And I, I've been following Pastor John since the 1990s, and, and I've watched him joyfully, joyfully to God. In fact, his book, Desiring God, just totally transformed my life. And it was all about just the joys of drawing near, the, 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 the delight and the pleasure that comes by just communing with God. He, he has a little phrase that I think is great. He, he calls himself a Christian hedonist. And what he means by that is that he finds greater joy, greater happiness, greater pleasure being in God's presence over anything else. That's where he finds his joy. And I've watched him since the 1990s draw close to the Lord. His joy is in Jesus. However, when he was reflecting on 50 years of ministry, he shared, shared how he, 
He drew near to God even in the hard times. And he talks about days where it was really hard to hold fast. You see, there were days when uh, he just had to hold fast and, and cling for dear life. His little rhythm when he was a pastor is he, he, had, he took Thursdays as, as a day off. And he said on, on those days, those were the hardest days. He, he would take his kids to school, and then his pattern was he would just go to the park and just sit there. And he was overcome in those moments of just so many days of just depression and anxiety and fear. He talked about that in the days where his church was really growing and they were having to make hard choices about expanding staff and how are they building out the staff and doing all these different things. He was just exhausted. He was overwhelmed. It led to great fear and depression in his life. And he would sit on those Thursdays in that park and holding fast look like crying prayers. He said, I would just sit in that park and weep, weep and pray. Many times that's what it looks like to draw near. I mean, we can clean it up, but that's really what it looks like. Many days it's praying and praying through those tears. Sometimes drawing near and holding fast looks like Pastor John crying and praying in that park. Well, since the 1990s, I've watched Pastor John draw near and hold fast when so many others didn't. When so many others were, were tempted away, by God's grace, he continued to draw near. Maybe they were tempted away by money or power or fame that all came calling. But this faithful little pastor kept drawing near. You see, so many others uh, let go in the face of a fad. But by God's grace, he continued to hold fast. Maybe that fad was uh, cultural pressures like the LBGTQ movement or different failings that he had seen in the church, but this faithful little pastor kept holding fast. I I went to that conference because I kind of had a sense, maybe this is the last time I'm going to see him. He's 76 years old. And man, my greatest delight at that conference was seeing on that 76-year-old face, a man that had held fast, drawn near. He was a happy man. He was a joy-filled man. He, he was a man just filled with, with just spirit-filled energy. Now hear me, no one is perfect, but a life of drawing near and holding fast, that's the pathway to joy. It's Pastor John says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Friends, that's the call of this passage. Jesus is more glorious than anything in the world. Jesus is the one whose blood was shed. Jesus is the one who tore open the curtain. Jesus is the one that enabled us to go into the presence of God. Jesus is our ticket into heaven. Jesus is the one who is with us in the hardest moments of this life. Jesus is with us when we get cancer. Jesus is with us on, on the, on the, when we're getting the CAT scan. Jesus is with us always. Jesus is this source of life. When all the world just hammers us with all these different pressures, draw near, confidently, confidently draw near and hold fast. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reminder of this passage. reminder of these glorious gospel truths. And Lord, thank you for the clear admonitions, the clear imperatives here to hold fast and draw near. May we never be a people that that abandons the truth for fads. May we never be a people that, that let go in the face of criticism. May we not be a people that when we struggle with sin or struggle with suffering, may we not be a people that run away, but people that run closer to you. 
Father, help us to draw near and hold fast. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.